Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, you are excused. There should be some. Uh, there should be some teachers in the back. And for the rest of us, we are continuing our uh, our sermon series in the Gospel of John. So, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. We are in chapter two. We're going to be looking at verse thirteen to the end of the chapter, verse twenty-five. My, uh, my dad grew up in a, a big family, and he was particularly close with one of his sisters who lived near my family. And so I think it was when my dad was bored, he would gather us kids together, and we would go unannounced and just drop in to their house. And it actually was better when they weren't there, all right? My dad had a key, and so we'd show up. They weren't there. Great. He'd open the door. We'd go right in. And we'd see what was for dinner last night, and we'd start eating leftovers. We, we would play with their toys. Uh, we would kind of move things around in the house. And then we'd just sit on their porch and just wait for them to arrive. I loved it. Because here's the thing. When you drop into someone's house unannounced, you never know what you're going to find, right? Now, I, I sort of grew up in a time when you could do that, Right? Now we live in a time that before you even call someone, you have to like text them. But when I grew up, you could just walk into someone's house. I mean, I I think that's why in my house growing up, there was so much candy and cookies because you just never knew if someone was going to walk into your house and you had to feed them. Now you have to text someone, call someone, get an RSVP before you just drop in unannounced to their house. But, But there's this long tradition in pastoral ministry where on Sunday afternoon, a pastor would just drop in And see how you're doing. And let me just say, when you drop into someone's house unannounced, you just never know what you're going to find. Now, I I sort of say this and I'm not like soft pitching a new ministry that I'm about to do. (laughs) Some of you are getting a little anxious. But what I'm just hypothetically suggesting as a mere thought experiment, we actually find in the pages of Scripture. Right? What is more frightening than me just showing up at your house is this. What, what if God showed up at your house? Or what if God showed up at our church unannounced? What would he find? Would he find a church that he would just then applaud because of their apparent righteousness? Would God be impressed if he showed up unannounced? Would he find our, our, our worship, our liturgy, our deeds? Would he applaud them or would he find them wanting? Well, what's sort of a thought experiment for us actually happened 2,000 years ago. God shows up. He shows up and the question for us this morning is, What's he going to find? God shows up to church. Or really, he shows up on the Passover to the temple. And what he finds is quite interesting and very applicable to us this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to read verse 13 to verse 25.
the big idea is going to be on the, uh, on the screen behind me, and it's simply this. And you'll see it kind of pop up in various ways as I read it. Jesus tears down the temple in order to build a better way to God. That's what we're going to consider this morning. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out coins, the coins of the money changers, and overturned the tables. Then he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So there, if you go up, back up to verse 13, we have our setting, right? The setting, the context is the Passover, that great annual feast that celebrated the Exodus. When God delivered God's people and, and sort of flew them on eagles' wings out of their slavery in Egypt, and he brings them so that they can worship God and serve God, and he constitutes his people there at Sinai as his people, right? They have a, they have a birthday party in the wilderness. And so the Passover it has all this sort of anticipation, excitement. It was the birthday party for the people of God, for Israel. It, it's, it's a bit like Christmas for us, right? Right, in Christmas, there's all that. There's, there's rituals. There, there's anticipation. You, you even sometimes drive far away to be with family to celebrate. Well, the Passover to them was a bit like Christmas is for us. And so the Passover had come, and everyone was traveling. Everyone's traveling down to Jerusalem to be in the temple, and it must have been crowded on those highways down to Jerusalem. More crowded than Meridian at 5 p.m. on a workday, right? And so Jesus, eventually, he arrives. He arrives to celebrate with God's people in the temple, the Passover. And when he finally arrives to the temple, and he arrives at the outer court, the outer court being those that, that even Gentiles could be a part of, he arrives, verse 14, and the question for us is, what is he going to find? Look there in verse 14. This is what he finds. He arrives at the temple, and he found... Those who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Now, uh, some sort of historical context is helpful, right? For, For the Israelite, there was a mandatory temple tax. So even back there, there was two inescapable truths, right? Death and taxation. So they had to pay a tax, but 
there's sort of a problem. And that is that you couldn't just pay with any sort of money. So let's say you had traveled far away, you're from some Roman province, and you only have Roman money and currency. Well, you had to exchange it to a particular currency. You had to take the unclean currency and make it holy currency, right? You had to take the, the unclean Roman currency and make it into some divine ducats, as it were. And so these money, money changers, they provided a service. A service to people who, from various places to exchange their money into cleaner currency. They were sort of the ATM of the day. You put your Roman dollar in there and out popped 80 cents. I mean, there's always a service charge, right? So there in Jerusalem in the court, the court of the Gentiles, you have Jesus and he finds money changers. But that's not all he finds, right? Right? He finds people selling animals. Now, this too, some historical context is helpful because this should make perfect sense. Imagine if you were traveling to the Passover from really far away or just traveling to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice. I mean, you're not going to bring a pigeon or a lamb from that far away. I mean, that's just not practical. I mean, it's hard for me to travel with my kids down to Portland. Imagine traveling with an animal on foot. Miles and miles. I mean, it's just not practical. And so you had people saying, oh, I'll just bring money. And then there I'll buy an an animal to sacrifice to God. So they also provided a great service. But there's a problem, isn't there? That as they traveled, and as Jesus finally arrives at the temple, he looks, he sort of foresees everything going on, and Jesus says, there's a problem, isn't there? I mean, it might seem like this is just great, right? One-stop shopping, a way to exchange your money. It's a way to get a sacrifice. And you don't even need to bring a sacrifice. Someone in this church was telling me that Amazon is trying to think through how to use drones to drop off packages to our homes. I mean, this, some of you might be creeped out. I think this is awesome, right? This is so cool. Well, it's going to cost something, isn't it? Nothing's free. And so these people selling animals in the temple court and these money exchangers, they were charging pretty high interest, but they were charging in order to do this. That's the sort of scene and context to which Jesus enters. He sees it. He sees the money changers. That's Jesus. The animals. And what he sees isn't sort of a religious experience, which is what he went to go to experience. It was like Jesus walked into church, he blinked, and he realized he had walked into the Puyallup Fair. Right? You guys have all been to the Puyallup Fair, or many of you have. If you haven't, maybe don't go. Right? But, but if you walk into the Puyallup Fair, right, you go through the gates, instantly you're, you just have all these smells for good and ill. And you see all these people, they're selling pretty much anything you could want or anything you don't want. The last time I was there, I was with Jason and Rebecca Murdoch, and we passed the hot tub stand. And there was one hot tub that could seat, that you can get 30 people in. And I turned to Jason, and I said, you should buy this. Like, 30 people. I mean, this would be great for your small group. You could get everyone in your small group in this hot tub. I mean, just imagine the kingdom work that you could do if you buy this for the rock-bottom price of $20,000. I mean... Jesus shows up at church. He shows up to the temple, and it's like he had just walked into the Puyallup 
fair. With all of the chaos, all of the bizarre, all of the rides, it's chaos. He goes thinking he's going to have a religious experience. He's going to, you know, come and pray, make sacrifices, and he walks in to the Puyallup Fair. Which makes perfect sense what we see him do in verse 15. Look, look at verse 15. He, he picks up some cords. He knots them together, together in a like MacGyver-like way. He makes a whip out of it. And he begins to drive people out. Drive the money changers. Drive the, the, those men and women who are selling animals. Throwing tables. It'd be like walking in the Puyallup Fair and all of a sudden you see someone walking up to the elephant ear stand, right? Throwing tables, grabbing the dough, grabbing money, chasing the employees away. I mean, imagine just the, the chaos, the commotion of it all. That's what Jesus is doing here. But Jesus doesn't just push them out, does he? Verse 16, Jesus speaks. He sort of interprets what he's doing here. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So a temple, in a general sense, but then in a sort of particular biblical context, a temple is a way humanity met with God. The first temple was the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve walked with God, met with God, followed God, had union and had a relationship with God. The first temple is in the Garden. And then when they're kicked out of Eden... Because of their sin, there was need for more temples, wasn't there? And so Moses met with God in the tabernacle, and then Solomon built a temple where God met with his people there, year after year after year after year. The temple was a way God's people, particularly racked by sin, could meet with God through sacrifices, through, through priestly mediation. That's how God's people, and that's how all people could meet with God, through the temple system. That's the theological, the, the, the central theological purpose of the temple. How can a sinner meet with God in his holiness? And the answer, through the sacrificial system of the temple. But you see, instead of prayer, or instead of, you know, sacrifice, instead of Jesus walking into the temple and finding pietistic people, people searching for God, he finds the Puyallup Fair. Instead of Jesus finding prayer, he finds the selling of pigeons. Instead of finding brokenness, contrition over sin, he finds noisy commerce. Instead of finding adoration, people on their knees, people worshiping God, he finds the world's fair. Instead of finding people seeking God, it seems like everyone is just seeking their own ends. What was sort of the purpose of the temple? At the core was God. The temple was theocentric. It was all about God and the worship of God. That purpose, the centricity of that purpose, had been pushed to the outskirts and now what was taking its place was this sort of commerce. And so what unfolds in this scene is, well, Jesus pushes out what should have been on the outskirts, and he tries to push it back out to the outskirts. Jesus wants to put God back the center of worship. And that's the scene that's unfolding here. 
And as it does, you can just imagine the disciples being dumbfounded. Like, what is going on? Like, why is Jesus doing this? And then a text pops into their mind. Does this ever happen to you? Right? You, you foresee something, something's going on in your life, maybe something troubling, you can't make sense of it, and instantly a story in the Bible or a text, a verse pops into your mind and reframes it, helps you understand what's going on. That's what happens here. They're surveying this scene, and all of a sudden, Psalm 69 pops into their mind. The, the, the text that Phil read earlier. It's a psalm of David. Zeal for your house will consume me, David wrote. David wrote that zeal for God's, a passion for God's house would just consume the totality of who he was. He would be eaten up by a passion for God's glory and God's glorious house. And if you keep reading, it says, zeal for my house will consume me and the insults of those who insult you, that is God, will fall on me. So David says, I am so aligned with God. I am so zealous for God. I am so reveling in who God is, his majesty and his grandeur, that if you attack God, if you defame God, it's as if you're defaming me. That's what David writes. And it's interesting that the disciples now connect David's words with Jesus and says, oh, David was only was true, it was fully true, but, but now Jesus has come on the scene and he is a far greater David than Jesus. And he is far more consumed with God's glory and the glory of God's house. So just imagine if you're a Gentile. Imagine if you're a Gentile seeking God, walking into this place, and you walk in, and it's like the Piaf Fair, and you just see commerce and shouting and negotiation of pigeons and exchanging money. I mean, can you imagine what sort of thoughts you would have about God? My guess is you would come to wrong understanding, a wrong understanding of God if you just walked into that outer court. And that's what Jesus is so pushing against. They are defaming the house of God by what is going on in that outer court. The sort of irreverence of what was going on in the outer court was choking out the essence of what the temple was purposed to do. Namely, be a place where sinners could meet God. Now, I think this is an unfortunate reality in all of our lives, right? How we could take good things, neutral things, fine things, and those things can become central things in our life. Things that should become, that shouldn't be as important as they ought to be can just slowly trickle in and capture our hearts. And I think maybe Jesus' words to them would be Jesus' words to us. Take these things away. We could take a small pleasure, something enjoyable, And I think Jesus would say, if it's choking out the worship of me, my central place in your heart, take it away. One of the small pleasures in this world that I love more than anything is throwing things away. Okay, I might be the only one here, but there is some weird, perverse pleasure I get in just throwing something in the trash. I love it. It's enjoyable. I feel free. 
And I can't be the only one because there's like this resurgence of reality TV shows about, you know, getting your life in order and throwing things away and getting your life and home in order, right? You know what I'm talking about. So, so, so let me like, like sort of baptize the whole Marie Kondo idea, right? If you're into that sort of thing. Her, her, her whole point is that if, if something doesn't bring you joy, chuck it. Well, I think there's a good principle there. It's the principle that I think is in our text today, which is there are lots of good things in our life, but if it's choking out your worship of God, your joy in Christ, chuck it. Whatever habit, whatever sin, if it's impeding your relationship with Christ, Jesus' words are applicable to us. Get rid of it. You don't need it. Jesus here was so zealous for God, he began to rid the temple of those things that were not helpful. Jesus wanted to center, to sort of quote a really cheesy 1990s contemporary song. Jesus was trying to get to the, back to the heart of worship, right? When it was all about him, all about him, Jesus. Remember that song. Well, Verse 18, look there. Jesus is clearing part of the temple court, which in many ways was a hostile act. But it wasn't so hostile, right? Because in many ways, people were thinking, oh, Jesus is just trying to have a conversation about what pure worship looks like, how how to regulate worship, and what the essence of worship was. And there's lots of conversations in the first century about that. I mean, John the Baptist and his ministry was all about worship, what that looks like how God's people should be worshiping and how they were worshiping poorly. And so the Jewish people at that time, they, they come to Jesus and they're like, okay, what are you doing? You, you see that? They, they ask him a question. They, they, they respond, verse, uh, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, he's saying, what authority do you have, Jesus? That's what these people were saying. What authority do you have to regulate worship? And if you display a sign or a miracle, then we can authenticate that you have the authority to do the very thing that you're doing. So here are these people. They're they are demanding that Jesus do a miracle, provide some sort of sign to authenticate who he is, that he has the prerogative to regulate worship as it looked like he was doing. And what does Jesus say in return? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, I love it. They, they, they think he's strictly talking about physical temple, right? That they interpret it literally, and they say, that's ridiculous. I mean, in 46 years it took us to build this temple. You're going to build it in three days? I mean, that is ridiculous. No one would tear down the temple and build it up in three days, not just because no one would actually do that, but no one could do that. It's ridiculous what Jesus says. John then helps us and says, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. But in actuality, and you're going to see this all over John's gospel, John consist, or Jesus consistently kind of talks on multiple levels. So in one sense, he is saying the temple is coming down. The physical temple, it's coming down. But he's also talking about a spiritual reality. He's talking about his own body. 
Right? Just one chapter earlier, we saw it a few weeks ago, Jesus tells us that he is the tabernacle, that, that he tented among us. Jesus, in his incarnation, was like no other temple that has ever existed. God has uniquely resided with his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam and Eve met with God in the garden. Ah, oh, but it was short-lived, wasn't it? Yes, Moses met with God in the wilderness through the tabernacle. But at the end of the book of Exodus, Moses can't even go into the, into the tabernacle. The glory fills it, and he can't even go. Yes, Solomon builds a temple, meets with God, but at the end of his life, God rips the kingdom in two because of his sin. Do you see the tension? There's all these temples, there's all these meeting places between God and his people, and yet they're all insufficient. They're like learner's permits. A learner's permit is a good thing. It's a great thing. It's a fine thing. That's where you learn how to drive a car, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's just pointing to the actual driver's license. Well, that's what's going on here. All of those temples, those tabernacles, they were, to use biblical language, they were copies. They were a shadow. They were a temporary structure in order to point to a final, full, complete way in which God could meet with his people in their sin. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm going to bring down this temple. You thought this was the way in which you could be reconciled to God is through the temple. You, you thought that the, the, the way to be forgiven by God is through this temple. I'm bringing down the whole system. And if Jesus was lying, this is blasphemy. If Jesus isn't telling the truth here, it's blasphemy. And lucky for him, not luck, but you get my point. Luckily, the Jews didn't know what he was talking about. And they just took it literally because they understood really what he was saying. They'd have killed him right then. Jesus is saying, your whole system of relating to God, it's got to go. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am. I am the true and final temple. If you want to meet God, you won't meet God any longer in the temple. You won't meet God any longer through those sacrifices. You're not going to meet God through the priestly mediation and his role there. You are going to meet God in one final person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the temple. And we know historically that the temple would crumble. The temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. But when was the temple really destroyed? Well, it tells us when Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is the tabernacle where you can hear from God. Jesus is the temple where you can be forgiven by God. Jesus is the tent where you can walk with God. So you don't need a physical temple anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't need to make physical sacrifices in the temple. No longer necessary. You don't need to make a spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You don't even need to be baptized in the River Jordan. All unnecessary. All obsolete. All these sort of temple threads that we see in the Old Testament, they're all being woven together and fulfilled in Jesus. From the sacrifices to forgiveness to being in God's presence to how to become clean. All of those 
threads. Those sort of theological threads of the Old Testament related to the temple, they're all finding their complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but all of those sort of existential questions that the temple poses to us, right? Those existential questions like, will God forgive me? I've done a lot of sin. That existential question like, will God walk with me? Does God love me? Or maybe even better, does God even like me? We all have those existential questions. And here, Jesus is saying the answer to all of those questions is, yes. But not everyone gets it, right? Look down at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his own part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, it looks like Jesus is being kind of cruel here, but that's not going on here at all. You see, some people were turning to Jesus and believing in Jesus because of the things that he could do. Evidently, after this scene, during the Passover celebration, he started performing some other miracles. There were some other signs, and people said, I like that. I want that. I want my old life, my old traditions, but I just want a little bit of Jesus to sprinkle on top of it. I want that old familiar religion, but with the signs and wonders. I want my old life, but can you just... Can Jesus, can you just bless parts of my life? Bless my marriage, bless my family, bless me financially. Do those sorts of things. And then I can have my old life. I mean, it's like having your cake and eating it too. And Jesus, it's so wonderful here. These people were turning, believing in one sense in Jesus, but Jesus can see right through it, can't he? It's frightening. It's as if Jesus is saying, they They entrusted themselves to Jesus, but Jesus, knowing their hearts, wouldn't entrust himself to them. He didn't even need a witness from man. He knew their hearts. He had just revealed himself to them. He was the temple where they could meet with God, be forgiven by God, have a relationship with God, walk with God. And yet some here were just hedging their bets being political. They loved Jesus, the miracle worker. I mean, who doesn't? They loved Jesus, the magician. Who wouldn't? A little healing here, a little healing there. That'd be wonderful. That's not Jesus' gig at all. He's not something that you can just add to your religious Sunday. He's not just something that you can add to your life. He's bringing down the whole system and refashioning and remaking it. And so they couldn't have their old traditions. And Jesus sees right through them. You see, in John, there's belief, and then there's true belief. There's believing in Jesus, and then there's really believing in Jesus. And that's sort of how our text ends this morning. Sort of on a, not a sour note, but a curious note, doesn't it? 
A note like, are, are people going to accept Jesus? Are people finally going to understand? I mean, I think it's, it's wonderful that when Jesus talks about, oh, he, he's, he's saying this about his body, no one even understands. And then John tells us that like, oh, finally, after the resurrection, the disciples go, ah, now we get it. Right? We sometimes look at the disciples and we want to go like, oh, we should build our faith like the disciples. The disciples were, frankly, to use a theological term, spiritual idiots sometimes, right? They were clueless. That is, until they saw the resurrection. I mean, thanks be to God that we live this, on this side of the resurrection. And so that's how this text ends this morning. Jesus shows up sort of unannounced, and what does he find? He finds the temple wanting, and he finds the hearts of men and women wanting. That's what happens when God shows up unannounced often. So I wonder this morning, if God were to show up into our lives, as God shows up in your life, if God were to show up at our church, would he find us wanting? Many were not ready to entrust their lives to Jesus when he showed up, were they? Right? The cost was too high. The demand, way too steep. The sacrifice upon their family, not worth it. But as we see in this text, you never know what you're going to find when you show up someplace unannounced. That is, unless you're God, right? He knows. He can see right through us. And so I suppose I'll leave you and I'll leave us all with just one final question. It's really the question of our text this morning. The question I began with, it's the question I'll end with. When God shows up in your life, what's he going to find? What's he going to find? Let's pray. God, uh, we, um, we, we pray. We, we pray that we would understand in a deeper way the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, and the freedom granted and awarded in the privilege of union with him. Lord, we want to behold your son, Jesus. We want to believe in your son, Jesus. Even when things go hard, even when things are hard, even when trials come, we want to cling to him and believe in him, trusting that all things work together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. So thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we pray, Lord, that we will continue to walk in light of that revelation. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.